Very good morning to you and a happy new year. How are you doing? You doing okay? You excited about the year ahead? You don't sound very excited. Come on, it's the beginning of 2019. Great things in store, right? Come on, absolutely. I wonder at the start of this new year, if I were to ask you to tell your story, the story of your life, how would you tell it? What would you emphasize? What would you think it was important to tell other people about yourself, about your life? What's no longer important, which was once important? Would you tell it the same way today in 2019 as you would tell it a year ago in 2018 or maybe 10 years ago? Perhaps in the last year you've learned new things about yourself, your world, your faith, your historical moment, what really matters. Perhaps your audience has changed. You're in a new context. I like to tell my kids stories about my American great-grandmother and grandmother. Despite the fact that I am an immigrant, Yes, I am. I'm a privileged white immigrant, but I am an immigrant, so my family experiences something of the dislocation of living in a different culture. And because my kids are growing up in this culture, I want them to know that they have a story here that goes right back to their great-grandmother. But maybe as they settle, and as I hope one day maybe they'll have children themselves, maybe the stories I tell them will change. Because maybe as they grow into the culture and are part of the culture, then it will become more important for me to tell them about their Britishness and why the Beatles still rock. (laughs) It's one of the peculiarities of the Christian story that we hear in the Gospels different versions of the same story. There are, as you know, I'm sure, four Gospels. And if you choose to look past uh, our sort of assumptions, you'll see that those four Gospels are really quite different. They have a lot, obviously, of commonalities, but they're more different than you might expect. And we're going to look at one of the stories from one of the Gospels, from the Gospel of Matthew, that is not told in any of the other Gospels. And it's the story of the three, or is it three? No, it's not. Wise men, are they kings? No, But it's the story of the Magi, the wise men who come from the East. You heard a little bit of that last week when Corky was in the character of Joseph. Oi. I listened to it. But it's a fair question to ask. Why are there four Gospels? If your aim as a part of the body, the church, really, who brought together the canon of Scripture, wouldn't it be simpler just to insist on one version of the story? Doesn't that make it more credible? If your aim is simply to convince people that this is true, surely you would just say, let's choose the best one and not confuse with any others. So why four Gospels? I want to suggest this morning... That, of course, there are a number of reasons, partly because the gospel writers had different audiences in mind, 
But the reason that I think, um, or, or a reason that I'd like to think about this morning is simply this. Because the gospel writers are not primarily introducing you to ideas about God, theories about God, doctrines. They are doing that, but their primary purpose is to encourage you into an encounter with a person. The primary purpose of the gospel writers is to invite you into an encounter with a person. Persons are alive. They can't be reduced to formulas or descriptions. Persons interact with what's around them. They enrich, they disrupt. They can be known in ways that go beyond information or simply description. And I want to suggest this morning that the story of the three kings, who aren't kings, by the way, is at least in part about that. It's about an encounter with a person. And we're going to see that set against that, we have the figure of Herod, the Roman subject puppet king, the desperately insecure Herod, who will try to keep things impersonal and to destroy the person of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me, and then we'll have a little look at this text. Father God, this morning... At the beginning of 2019, we want to acknowledge, Lord, that you are alive. That you are not simply a thought or an idea, but you are the living God. So this morning, as we listen to your scriptures, your word, would you speak to us? where we need to be spoken to at the beginning of this year. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is what we read. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or in some uh, translations, magi from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So, just to be clear, the Magi are not kings. You know that song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Do you know that one? Have you ever sung that? Heretics! It is not, they're not kings. And they're probably not even three. The reason we say three is because they bring three gifts. So there's no record of the number. They're Magi, traditionally assumed to be from a tribe of priests in Persia. That might be true. Magi can also mean, mean magicians or astrologers. That's interesting. From a point of view of religious orthodoxy, they weren't. They were stargazers, probably. And it's significant to the Jewish audience that these magi come from the east. Lots of bad things in Israel's story come from the east. Babylon, Assyria. So at first glance, it looks an odd story, if you are Matthew, to include, and as part of your building up, of the picture of God's salvation work. And it's one of the many surprises of the Gospels. I think we have a picture of um, Siena Cathedral. I don't know how well you can see that, but this is a cathedral in Italy, in Siena. And it's a picture of the floor. Siena Cathedral is one of the great Christian cathedrals. 
On the floor, you've got 56 squared, designed by the Renaissance masters. It's a sort of epitome of uh, Renaissance architecture and wealth, actually, in Italy. So you might think that the pictures, the images on the floor, would concentrate on episodes from the Bible or the Christian story, but not so. The three aisles concentrate on episodes and characters in Greek and Roman humanist culture. What are they doing in the Christian cathedral? The stories in the floor only resolve themselves at the altar. And it is only when you get to the altar that you see the person of Christ. Here's what I think the Renaissance mind was not doing. They were not saying, oh, all religions lead to God. That's not what they were saying. They were not saying it really doesn't matter how you get there. What they were saying is that if you look hard enough in the stories that surround us, you will see echoes, you will see foreshadowings of the basic human need that can only be resolved in another person, the divine person, Jesus Christ. All stories, the cathedral seemed to say, all doctrines can only be resolved in a person, a living person. And there's no doubt that Matthew sees the visit of these magi as a fulfillment of Scripture, the ingrafting of Gentile persons. By the time that Matthew was writing, messy Gentiles like you and me were flooding into the church. Most of his Jewish compatriots didn't want to know about this person, Jesus. But then hadn't Isaiah, the Jewish prophet, said, Arise, arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And then a little later, and nations, nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And then a little later again, a multitude of camels shall cover you. That doesn't sound like good news. I'm not quite sure what's going on there. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, and from Sheba. And they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news as the praises of the Lord. It's an image of the Gentile world, the nations that surrounded Israel, flooding in to worship God. The great migration of Gentiles into essentially the Jewish story, that's what was happening in the early church, was profoundly disturbing. We just happen, in 2019, to be living through, by far and away, the greatest human migration there has ever been. Off the charts. Never been anything like it. It is going to be part of our story, whether we like it or not. And it will be disturbing. You see, persons, people, are just odd, aren't they? I mean, I've got to know some of you, and you're pretty odd, really. I'm pretty odd. I bet you don't know that many years ago, I studied to be an actor in Paris. Oh. And while I was living in Paris, I built 
my own caravan to live in out of a truck. And I lived for a year beside some people who lived on riverboats. Why was that a good idea? Let me tell you, it wasn't. Trucks are made of metal. Metal is a heat conductor. When it's winter, it gets very cold. I would wake up with ice on the ceiling. People are odd. They do strange things. But as a church, we're called to be sent out. We're called on mission as odd people, which you are and I am, to other odd people who do odd things and believe odd things. It's not easy, it's disturbing, and it's why in Paul's letters, you cannot understand what Paul is writing about unless you understand that that is what is going on all the time. Odd, disturbing, often Gentile believers are coming into the story. And the question for us is, are we willing to start where those odd people are in their story, rather than insisting on our own story? To be clear, the Bible specifically prohibits stargazing. No to horoscopes. Practicing divination is listed as one of the reasons for Israel's exile. Deuteronomy, the law says, There shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens. So why is Matthew bringing into his story as part of the public witness of the birth of Jesus Christ magi, stargazers, astrologers? It's disturbing. But even more disturbing for the time was the arrival of a new king. Jesus, the person, came as a new king. And that's why, not because there were some new religious ideas, not because somebody had come up with some new thoughts about God, but because there was a new claimant, a person who was claiming or would claim kingship. That's what got Herod all worked up. Herod the Great, the Roman client king of Judah. This is what we read. When Herod the king heard about the birth of Jesus. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Why was Jerusalem worried about this birth of this insignificant baby? Well, there had been other claimants to kingship and to messiahship who had come along, and they had disrupted the fragile peace that existed between the Jewish community and the Roman community. This was troubling news. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Christ, which means the anointed one, the one who was anointed to be king, was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and so on, you will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Now, we know a little bit about Herod from history. He was a deeply insecure person, inclined to big vanity projects, which included the temple in Jerusalem, which was massively expanded under Herod, not for faith purposes, but as a kind of ego thing. 
He was prone to big vanity projects and prone to massacres. Herod slaughtered the last remnants of the previous dynasty of Jewish high priestly kings who had ruled before him, executed more than half the Sanhedrin, that's the Supreme Court at the time, that will solve a few problems. He killed 300 court officers out of hand, executed his own wife, her mother, and his three sons. And finally, as he lay dying, he arranged for all the notable men of Jerusalem to be assembled in the Hippodrome and killed as soon as his own death was announced. Nice guy. Actually not particularly atypical of the ancient world. In many ways, Herod was quite a successful man. Successfully forged a new aristocracy out of nothing. But Herod was deeply, personally threatened by the arrival of a new king. It was a challenge to his personhood, his sense of his own security. And this is how the story goes on. Herod summoned the wise men, the magi, secretly. Everything is in secret now. Hidden. And ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word. I too may come and worship him. No. No, absolutely not. Herod's intention was not to go and worship Jesus. And we know. Because when later Herod's ruse, and that's what it is, has failed, the Magi, having visited Jesus, and having been warned in dream about Herod, they slip away. And then Herod when he sees he's been tricked, becomes furious, sends and kills all the male children in Bethlehem. In that region, who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they were no more. Do you notice how Herod responds? For Herod, persons are not persons. They're just categories and numbers. Male, under two, living in the region. Not John or Joseph or the son of Mary, just male, under two, all in the region. It's a profoundly different way to respond, to categorize people simply as numbers. Non-believers, perhaps. Outsiders, Gentiles. Immigrants. Reduce person to some things and not some ones, and you can do anything. It's the way we learn to control and exert power. We just need to stop seeing other human beings as persons. So the contrast Matthew is deliberately drawing is on the one hand, the impersonal, powerful Herod, hiding in his palace, unlike the Magi, uninterested in who the person of Jesus is, no desire to visit only to discover where his power is located, where the, the threat to his power is located, then figure out how to destroy that person. And then on the other hand, Matthew builds a portrait of intimate humility, of the person Jesus, who we are all being invited to, to visit with the Magi. The true king, the true human, the true person, born in a guest room, in a home, in full view, the people of the house would have heard Mary's birth cry, surrounded by intimate warmth of animals, visited personally by Magi, 
who come to worship this person who they almost certainly do not understand who that person really is. Not yet. And they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold, because Jesus is a king. Frankincense points to his priestly nature. And myrrh was an intoxicant. And it points to Jesus' death. Jesus was offered wine and myrrh on the cross. He is the king priest, the priest king who was born to die. Encounter that kind of person. A king, priest, born to die. And your life will be disturbed. Changed. The challenge for myself, that I'm setting myself, and for you, at the beginning of 2019, is to keep coming back to the personhood of Christ. Don't turn him into an abstraction. Don't turn him into a religious idea. We need to keep coming to him, back to him. As people continually seeking to encounter, as in the cathedral at Siena, that our stories resolve themselves, not to an idea or a thought, but the person of Christ. Jesus is alive. You are part of the gospel story God is working into the world. Will we allow the person of Christ to form and shape us this year? Will we do it? Or will we, a little Herod-like, keep him at arm's distance, reduce him to a category or an abstraction or a thought, something that we can control? Will we be willing, perhaps, even to have a personal epiphany, a realization of just who this person is? Let's pray. Jesus, you invite us to come to you through your word, through the spirit, to bring us silently, ourselves silently before you and listening deeply. Jesus, you disrupted the ancient world that you were born into. And you continue to form and shape the world we live in. Would you help us by your presence to know your purposes for ourselves? for each of us, and as the church. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we baptize Nathan and go into the liturgy, I wanted Jake uh, to share about his own faith. So you and Hillary um, grew up without really much of faith on your own. You, Jake, apart from the church as far as I know, but you both came to faith as adults. So I asked Jake to just share a little bit about that. So Jake, come up and tell us a little bit about um, your faith in Christ and how it came about. Sure. Um, 
Yeah, I did. And as Johnny said, you know, as we get ready to present Nathan for his baptism, it did make me think a lot of my own baptism and think back to to those stories. And it was under, my, my baptism was under um, different circumstances than Nathan's. Um, I grew up uh, here in uh, the D.C. area in Alexandria. Um, I wasn't baptized um, as a child. Um, and I went to UVA for college. Um, and you know, one of the things that was different was that I started spending a whole bunch of time with people um, who were in the church, who knew Jesus, um, and that had not been a part of um, my upbringing. Um, I had a wonderful upbringing. I have a wonderful family, uh, great parents, great sisters, but church and faith was had not been a part of it. So this was sort of a weird new encounter for me. I thought, you know, that I'm sort of running into all sorts of people who knew Jesus, and they were a little bit strange and confusing, and um, but in a good way. Um, there's, I mean, a lot of, there were a lot of conversations that happened that year. There's, there's one story I like to tell just because I think it epitomizes a lot of what happened. There was, a, there was a professor of economics who was a believer and a rather forward one, and I was in his class, and he invited my roommate and me to go to church. And, uh, you know, I had never been to a church service, at least not as far as I could remember. Maybe I'd been to one after a sleepover sometime. But I said yes because, you know, I respected this professor. I, I already knew I wanted to be economist one day. My dad's an economist. I had always loved what he'd done, and this economist was sort of in the same type of, sort of the same vein of economics as my father. So, of course, I said yes to the invitation, but then when I started driving to the church, it was very uh, uncomfortable. I mean, I knew that these two people in the front seat were believers, and they went to church, and that was a normal thing, and my roommate next to me, he'd grown up going to church, but all of a sudden, I sort of had this moment of panic. I don't know what's happening here, so I felt very confessional, maybe. So, I, I just said, I said, Professor Elzinger, I want you to know, as we're heading to the church service, I'm not a Christian. And, you know, and he wasn't at all alarmed. And he said, Jake, I want you to know that as a Christian myself, it's my sincere desire that you would become one. But in terms of our friendship, it makes no difference. And we drove off and we went to the, to the service. And it was, uh, and I, I tell that story because it was emblematic of a lot of experiences I had. It was sort of, that, that was a hundred experiences wrapped into that one story. Um, but just met a great, great many people um, who knew Jesus and were close to him and were willing to share that uh, with me and come alongside me and be a part of my life. And, you know, and as Matt was saying, I was, I was odd. I mean, I was sort of an odd person for them to maybe not live in a van by the river odd, but, um, but there was no sort of earthly reason for them to want to include me in the things that they were, um, that they were doing. But they did, and that put me in harm's way of Jesus, and I'm forever grateful for it. So... Um, but in terms of thinking about the baptism, sort of bringing it to Nathan's, I did have this moment, I went back for my second year at UVA, and I went to, you know, the pastor, and I said, I'm, you know, I became a Christian, and I want to take communion, and I want to be a full part, and he said, great, well, are you baptized? And I said, I have no idea. So I called my parents, mom, dad, am I baptized? No, you're not. So we had a, you know, I had a, I was baptized when I was 19. Very, very different circumstances than, um, than Nathan, and it's caused me to reflect, um, you know, a lot on this. It's, it's, I, I love my story. I wouldn't trade it for anyone. I love having had a period of my life when I didn't know the Lord. It's, it's special to me. It's my story. But at the same time, it's also very special for Hillary and me to be able to present these kids to you as covenant children and, and to just present them to you and say, please help us to raise these kids to know Jesus so that they hopefully will never know a day that they didn't know um, that they were apart from the Lord. So I hope someday when they tell their stories, it's, you know, they talk about a family um, in Vienna that, that helped them to um, see Jesus and understand that he loved them. So.